HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by White Oak Pastures, a five-generation Georgia-based beef and poultry farm determined to conduct business in an honorable manner. For more information, visit whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Joe Galarraga with the Heritage Radio Network.org. Tune into this episode of Greenhorn Radio for some selections from the Greenhorns Audio Almanac. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy the show. Listeners, this is Severin, and this is another episode in the Young Farmer Policy Podcast Series, brought to you by the Greenhorns and recorded here live at WGXC. Today, I'm happy to be on the phone with my friend and colleague, Luke Grand from Iowa. Hi, Luke. Hi there. How's it going over there? Is it hot Hot there? No, it's uh, pleasant. It's uh, We actually had a blast of, blast of cold air, so we are... We are enjoying seasonally normal temperatures for the first time. Seasonally normal. That's the new that's <laughs> that's the new thrill. So that's the new normal. <laughs> we seasonally ha- normal. It's all seasonal. We have uh we have quite hot weather here today. We have about eighty three degrees. Yeah, the Boston Marathon runners are running heat. It's a little bit scary, but um we try for to our livestock listeners that must be really confusing. For those who are spending a lot of time shearing sheep, it may be a comfort that they won't be cold, but it's definitely hot work to be up to your neck in lanolin. Okay, now we're staying on topic. Luke, who are you, and what do you do? (laughs) My name is Luke Grand, and I am 27 years old, and I'm a nonprofit staff member, uh, a staff member at a not-for-profit organization called Practical Farmers of Iowa. And what does Practical Farmers of Iowa do? Practical Farmers of Iowa is a farmer-to-farmer networking organization and on-farm research organization where farmers choose the priorities and then they follow up and do their research and we as staff members help facilitate, you know, 
the, the process of writing reports and sharing that information widely so farmers can learn from an unbiased, unbiased third party. Uh, in addition to that big piece of our work in, in on-farm research, which is led by farmers, uh, all of our events are led by farmers, and the presenters of the events are also farmers. So farmers are the experts. Farmers share the knowledge, farmer to farmer, uh, so that farmers can have more profits, uh, have, have better, be better stewards, and hopefully live, live better lives. That's really, you did a very good spiel there. Now, let's talk about what makes that so practical. Now, is that, isn't that how all, of, all farm organizations operate for the best interests of farmers and the bottom lines of real people in the real world trying to do a good job on their land? I wish that was the case, but uh, unfortunately, at least in Iowa, a lot of our organizations are compromised by donors, including the university even, is getting, uh, is getting quite compromised by the lack of public investment. Um, and so what, what looks like, you know, farmers, uh, you know, having the best interests of farmers in mind, that really when you, look, when you scratch underneath the surface, a lot of these organizations, the best interests in mind are the people who are funding them. In our case, we are funded by the people, by the farmers, so we are compromised by our membership, uh, whereas other organizations are compromised by their, uh, uh, by their large chemical company or seed company, uh, you know, funders. So the compromises you have to make have to do with scheduling concerns of farmers and not planning any events right. in March. That's right. Yep. We are, we are, we are limited by uh, the demands of our membership, our farmers, not, uh, not by the donation amounts of uh, certain, certain key uh, corporations. So and so, oftentimes those of us who are in New York State, we think about Iowa, and we, you know, many of us have driven across Iowa. We've taken a train across Iowa. We've spent four days surrounded by corn and soybeans, and we think, hmm, that's kind of what's going on in Iowa. And we don't necessarily know about the resurgence in beginning farmers. That must we feel it must be going on there, but it's hard to see it from the highway. Tell me, right. what it do is. you what do you see from where you sit in your office? And, and why do you see that? Well, it's uh, wonderful. We are living through the boom times for beginning farmers, I like to say. Um, it's, uh, there's just, people are coming out of the woodworks um, wanting to farm in ways that uh, we haven't seen in many, many decades, even maybe a generation. Um, you know, in the 80s, Iowa suffered tremendously um, in something called the farm crisis, which I'm sure uh, folks in the Northeast as well um, suffered through. But in Iowa, we probably hit people. People were calling suicide hotlines. Uh, you know, there were terrible farmer suicide uh, reports in the newspaper about uh, you know folks who lost everything, lost the farm, because uh, they over leveraged. You know, in, in times, and uh, so you know, the, Iowa has this long, long history of, of producing uh, a few crops. You know, and, and a long history of volatility, terrible uh, tragedy. Um, in real struggle to stay on the land and stay in, in, in earning a living in farming. Uh, if you looked at a graph of the number of farms in Iowa and the number of farmers, they would, uh, it would look like an X, where over time, the number of farmers decreases linearly uh, and, the number, and the farm size, uh, excuse me, increases uh, linearly. So, um, you know, that's the kind of the, the long-term perspective that farmers have faced in Iowa. And as a result, they've, uh, farmers have made decisions to try to eke out a living based on the kind of, cr kind of crop systems that were supported in the infrastructure. And many, many decades ago, 
from as far as I can tell, there was a national uh, discussion that said, okay, California is going to produce this, this, and this, and this, and Iowa is going to produce this, 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 and this, and uh, Northeast will be a dairy. You know, you know, there, there is certain regionality, and uh, as as the, as the economy has developed, um, and this might be getting a little too too complex. No, but, we like uh, it. We like it. Just keep it short. But you're going great. Okay. As the economy has, has developed, uh, you know, we've we've created WalMarts all over the country. So you know, you, Iowa is the Walmart of corn, and it's the, it's, the, it's the Walmart of soybeans. Uh, it's also the Walmart of, of eggs. We you know we're the top five in, in egg uh, production and. Uh, and different poultry, you know, not as much as in Arkansas and whatnot, but you know these these vast, vast industrial-sized uh, landmarks of food production have uh, have, have created a, a, a place where Iowa looks, you know, 23 million acres of it looks like corn and soybean ground, and then there's huge, huge buildings with uh, confinement animal operations. Um, so that's that's what that's what was was provided as op- as options. If you wanted to be in farming over the last 50 years in Iowa, you got big or got out. You got huge, invested in huge machinery, took huge risks to produce a couple, couple commodities on the finest soil, uh, prairie soil in the world. Uh, but yeah, as, as, as consumers have started to ask more questions about where their food comes from, the local food thing has created uh, new opportunities in the marketplace for, for innovators and entrepreneurs. And we, we are seeing entrepreneurs, just like everywhere across the country, is seeing for folks who want to grow uh, different, different crops and, and livestock, raise livestock in different ways and do some of their marketing. So what you're saying is there are many new farms in Iowa, and they're growing food for the local market, and they are peopled by uh, ambitious, many times young farmers who are running more diversified operations with an eye towards sustainability. And the- Absolutely. About 30% of our beginning farmers are in their 20s. Uh, 25% of them are in their 30s. Uh, 20% of them are in their 40s. I mean, that's huge. The, the average age of a farmer in Iowa is 65 years old. And, uh, you know, the average age of, of the practical farmers of Iowa, beginning farmer, is, you know, in the 30s. So, you know, there's something that's unique about, uh, you know, folks that are, there's definitely a huge movement in Iowa, as, as we're seeing across the nation, um, of folks that feel it's their, their opportunity to make a difference in the world by, by learning how to grow a profitable crop of local food. I'm so glad that you get to be feeling the same feeling as we're feeling. Isn't it fun? Excellent. Yeah. It's an excellent yeah. feeling. Okay. It now. is. It is. <laughs> um, okay, now, but you haven't explained the fact that you're the beginning farmer and rancher coordinator man and that you run all the That's programs. Right. So tell us what the programs well, are that PFI is running. Excellent. We are very, uh, so we've had a long-term uh, stake in, uh, in farmer-to-farmer learning. Um, it started out in the 80s as more, you know, focused on uh, crops like uh, corn and soybeans and, and, and beef and cattle, or, or excuse me, like dairy cattle and beef cattle production and, and pork. Um, but, uh, you know, over the last 15 years, we've grown into all kinds of enterprises, you know, including fruits and vegetables and herbs and all sorts of uh, different uh, <clears throat> you know, flowers and all sorts of crops. So <clears throat> in response to our changing membership, you know, we, we only do things based on what our members tell us to do. Uh, we're quite conservative in that respect. Uh, our members have demanded more programming to uh, to know how to do the production, marketing, and financing of the new kind of crops. Uh, in addition to in t- addition to the other crops as well, which we still have maybe 20% of our beginning farmers are, are still looking to grow corn and soybeans and raise beef cattle and, and, and 
market some hogs and you know, all in, all in niche-type enterprises, mostly. Um, niche meaning like Nyman Ranch pork or Nyman Ranch beef, uh, you know, kind of smaller, uh, different marketing outlets that'll pay a higher price and have a, a floor price, you know, and just different just different ways. You know, people are trying to, land access is so challenging, and so people are trying to find a way to make more profit on smaller amounts of land. So my role is to, uh, you know, is to serve our beginning farmers uh, with, farmer to farmer learning with, with topics that they request. So we just ask our beginning farmers what they want to learn, and then we compile lists of what they want to learn, and then we pick through it based on, uh, you know, what funding we have and what farmers we have to, that would be good to, uh, to share their knowledge about that topic, and, and then we just facilitate a networking event, you know, be it on-farm, uh, like at the 30 on-farm field days we do a year, where farmers invite folks, you know, 20 to 40 folks out to their farm to learn. Uh, or online, we have about 20 online events each year in the off-season from November through March, and uh, that, that allows folks to learn from farmers in 90-minute uh, time spans, uh, it, what we call farminars, webinars on farming topics. Farminars, that's copyrighted, so I don't want to see Severin, uh, Severin <laughs> Von Tosher Fleming's Farminar series next fall. Uh, Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> it's not copyrighted, is it? No. <laughs> no, it is not. Um, okay, so you have these wonderful farminars, and 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 people are talking on. Are people talking about overcoming obstacles, and what obstacles are they most eager to overcome? Our top three priorities for beginning farmers are is production, marketing, and financing. So you know, how do you grow something? How do you get it to a customer? How do you set a price for it? And uh, how do you do it in an efficient way that that leaves you profit at the end of it, um, and financing, so how, how can you create, uh, how can you improve your infrastructure on rent, rented land, you know, what kind of financing mechanisms can we use to help people, um, uh, you know, invest in their, in these new kind of businesses that are, that are kind of, uh, different, you know. And your position, is it funded at all by the Beginning Farmer and Rancher Development Program? It is actually. That's the, the. It's partly funded by that. We see. We have a really diverse funding stream. So, like we we uh, we have any farmer rancher development program money, but it, it complements a whole suite of, of funding sources that keeps us keeps us around. You know, when 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 funding priorities change, we'll still be here uh, serving our members. Is, is our is our hope. You know. So, but yeah, right now the any farmer rancher development program is a fantastic uh, way to way that uh, the federal government is complementing uh, the work of practical farmers of Iowa and and funding this, these kind of opportunities that uh, thousands of people around the country have, have really enjoyed. Uh, for example, we've had over 12,000 views of our Farminar series from around the country. When we hold a, when we hold a Farminar, about 30% of them are from outside of Iowa. 30% of our live viewers from outside of Iowa, and we do no marketing of our Farminars outside of our, uh, outside of our state. We just put the word out, and so people are finding Iowa, Practical Farmers of Iowa, and the, and the services provided by the Beginning Farmer Ranch Development Program and their funding stream to be quite valuable. I think there's a poster series in that. Look look to Iowa. <laughs> the sun rises over the horizon of corn. The sun rises west. Far look west, young man. Look west, young, young man. Farm, farm, farm in our now. Okay. <laughs> Jokes aside, as a beginning farmer advocate and farmer's wife, no, wait, you're a farmer's husband. I no, no, check this out. So my, my, my mother sometimes likes to say a little too loudly at family events that 
I do the books, and I have the off-farm job for my wife, who's a vegetable farmer. And she then says, I'm a good farm wife. <laughs> because in Iowa, the, the, the stereotypical role of, of, of a man has, or of a woman has been, um, you know, the woman goes to work in town and, and does the books on the farm and for the man, and, and she, she's a good farm wife. So uh, we've kind of turned everything on, on, it, on, the, on its head. Well, it's good. And you're tall, too. So you can probably get things off from the tall shelf. That's true. Actually, I, that's my main, my main uh, service I provide in our kitchen. Yeah, she can get the vegetables out of the ground. You can get the top things off the shelf. <laughs> okay. Now, but you're, but, so here we are. You and I are both uh, young professionals and young professionals who are really committed to this beginning farmer thing. And we're joined by many, many other young professionals who are starting their careers specifically oriented towards the needs and uh, community of new and beginning farmers and networked in with all those others of us um, through things like the Stone Barns Young Farmers Conference and where else did where did we get to hang out also oh yeah at Moses and then also I mean do you guys have a network in the Midwest of all the beginning farmer and rancher grant recipients who all get like networked together uh, we have really strong partnerships with lots of folks, uh, with lots of folks. So um, we don't really have like a, you know, a formal event that we have to do once a year. We like, uh, it's more informal and we're always like checking in with our partners like the Leopold Center, and which is in Ames, and, um, you know, the Iowa State Extension, uh, which has a bunch of great services they provide folks. And we always are sending our beginners to the different people, you know, to best serve them and, uh, we also, you know, uh, learn. We, we try to involve uh, folks from all different, uh, you know, the Land Stewardship Project, the great uh, organization in Minnesota, and in an Angelic Organics in Illinois. So yeah, we do. We do try to work, uh, you know, regionally. But we, we've our board. We have a farmer board. Ten of our twelve board members are farmers, and they've been very clear that they want us to focus on Iowa. So in many ways, they've kind of uh, restricted our ability to to do more regional grants and whatnot. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, we, we were always trying to learn. Just the other day, just, just today I was reading uh, SOG's, the Southern SOG Conference, uh, you know, conference uh, brochure, you know, and keeping tabs on everybody, you know, kind of getting, getting new ideas from people. Yeah, so because that's a thing that's been really fun for me is, like, learning how the different programs that people are interacting with here from, you know, Farm Start Loans and FSA Loans, and we just became a trustee group for Kiva, which is a... Online micro lending, peer to peer, zero percent interest. Yeah, yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, well, we we're now just we're doing a little pilot of experimenting with how that might work um, as an alternative to as an alternative financing method for beginning farmers. But you know, so we're learning here what was working for people around um, you know in our home region in, in New York State, and then around the country as I go and I'm on panels and filming. Um, and talking with people, you know, I'm learning how different places have different functions, like different places things function differently. So even if it's yeah. a federal program, you know, FSA, for instance, varies a lot state to state um, and officer to officer. Um, maybe right. you could just give a small overview of some of the programs. And again, keep in mind, this is a policy podcast. So focus on uh, making sure that you explain which parts of these programs um are coming from the Farm Bill or maybe even a part of the Beginning Farmer and Rancher Opportunity Act. 
but right. just an overview of some of the places as you've been, you know, passionately learning of what's working and what's working, what's not working, and where people should really be going. Um, some of your favorite places to point people. Well, I love the Farm Service Agency. I think they, I think they are doing excellent work. Uh, you know, we have 550 Iowa beginning farmers in our network uh, as of today. It's growing, continually growing. But um, you know, 2,500 loans out are beginning farmers. 2,500 beginning farmers that are, that are in Iowa that, are, that are, have loans out with the Farm Service Agency. So what they're doing is excellent. They've really broadened their support for beginning farmers over the last five years. Uh, they've included all different kinds of enterprises that they serve, not just the you know the, the ones that that we've typically served in Iowa. Um, I think they're doing great work, and I think it's a, it's a shame that they are uh, the funding situation they're, that they're living through is just a nightmare. You know, like our excellent loan officer just told me that they have a five-year salary freeze. So that means that no matter how good an employee does their job, how good their performance is. For the next five years, their salary will, will increase zero percent. That's so what's much, that going to do? To the, that just means you're not going to want to work for the government. You're going to want to work for exactly. a big bank. Exactly. So it's a real shame that you know, and the big bank's not going to necessarily serve beginning farmers. We we couldn't get a loan if our farm uh, applied for a loan at a bank. We'd be rejected immediately because for a lot of for a lot of reasons. But uh, you know, not we were seen as too risky because we didn't have enough experience or enough. Uh, proven uh, track record. Uh, so what, what, the, what the service the FSA provides is outstanding, and, uh, you know, that's my first place I like to look is, is, is doing a good job. Uh, secondly, I think as a policy standpoint, the National Sustainable Ag Coalition is, like, my number one heartthrob. I love them. I think they're doing great work, and I'm always looking for, for them for, for ways to keep uh, tabs on things. Um, but also, I, I'm, I'm lucky that I get to lean on our staff member Sarah Carlson, who's fantastic on policy. And maybe maybe you would have her on at some at some point to talk about uh, policy is, uh, issues. Sounds like a good plan. So, where are people? What are people looking into when they're trying to afford land in Iowa? All I read about is the incredible surge. You know, twenty percent surge in land prices, um, especially. For corn ground, and we have an action this coming week in New York City, a big protest coming up because there's a huge conference on uh, ag land investing. Right. And that obviously, you know, speculators have always been a part of agriculture. You don't have to read very much novels in order to learn about suitcase wheat farmers and the Dakotas and booms and busts yep. of various kinds throughout history. Uh, yeah. So it's nothing new, but tell us what it means for the beginning farmer. Well, uh, I, I have some. I'll, I'll admit my uh, background on this. I my I married very well, and my my wife's family is excellent. They're great people, and I uh, love my in-laws, and they have a lot of knowledge about land, agricultural land, and 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 uh, and, and buying farmland. And I've listened to a lot of uh, family conversations. Uh, so I'm leaning on, on those experiences heavily when I when I say this. But uh, in Iowa, uh, about 25% of people that, that are looking to buy land are not farmers. Uh, typically, it's been about that 20 to 25% for the last uh, you know several decades. Um, and I, I really think that uh, in Iowa, at least, you know, the vast majority of people that are buying land are not uh, investors. They're farmers. They're neighbors of each other. 
and they're fiercely competitive uh, because uh, with the kind of agriculture that, that is happening in Iowa, mostly large grain farms, specialized operations where you just do one thing, you know, just corn on corn on corn, and maybe some beans, and then more corn, um, you know, and you don't have an integrated livestock component, uh, you're really, you just, you really need to expand and get bigger so you can build your income. Uh, some people say you need one to 2,000 acres of land in Iowa of corn just to, just to be a profitable full-time commercial farm. Uh, so, you know, when a piece of land comes up for sale once every several decades, every single person in that neighborhood wants it. So that's, that's been the case here. Investors have a role to play, but they seem to be less uh, of a force than uh, high crop prices and com competitive uh, uh, neighborhoods uh, for, to, you know, to build income potential. So just everybody who's already farming and already has equipment wants to get more ground. More. Exactly. And, and because for a lot of reasons. But, but it's not about efficiency. It's about income. Mike Duffy told me that. He's a really good extension agent uh, at Iowa, Iowa State. been there for 30, 40 years. And I just listened to him last Monday, and that just blew me away. You know, I mean, this, all this talk about we have to be the most efficient, you know, agriculture and feed the world and blah, blah, blah. Well, people aren't getting to five, six, seven, and 15,000 acres of farms with five, six employees. They're not getting there for efficiency. They're getting there to grow business income. And when so where do beginning farmers fit in to this? Well, so beginning, so you're so you're saying here are these folks who are trying to get a bigger income, and they've got high high prices on their crops, and there's you know amazing investment going in. You can see it all over when you drive. People are putting in uh, grain storage, which is basically a way for them to like dump money into something that they can keep for thirty years. Yep. So they're like cash flush with cash and know that hard times follow. And here you have competing for that piece of land, someone with educational debt, limited equity, small farm dreams. You know, maybe they won't have medium size or large scale farm dreams, but they're just getting started. What right. what gives? How does it happen? What are some real world examples of how people overcome the impossible, um, seemingly Great impossible, question. problem? Yep. Uh, my good friend Nate Anderson. This is where I feel like we can really build coalition beyond just, uh, if we just focus on local food marketing beginning farmers, I think we should open it up to every beginning farmer because they're all in the same boat. I, I see beginning farmers in our network that are networking, that uh, grow totally different crops, have totally different marketing, you know, like the beginning farmer that grows for the farmer's market sitting right next to the beginning farmer that grows for ADM in the large grain, uh, grain marketing companies. Um, and they are learning together, and they're working because they're on the same boat. They all see themselves as fighting the same challenges: um, accessing land, controlling weeds, be it chemical or organic methods. Um, you know, a lot of camaraderie and common ground in, in being a farmer. So I'm just thinking about Nathan Anderson here, who's in, from Northwest Iowa, and a good friend of mine and a beginning farmer member. He farmed with his father and grandfather for seven years before he even thought about buying his first piece of land. So that's one way to do it. You know, if you can if you can farm on the side, if you can farm while you're in school, if you can get experience, then you've got seven years of experience to show a lender, and you know you're set. You know, you've you've, you've worked out your business learning. You've worked out all the tricks about running a business. 
before you've put yourself in a huge mountain of debt. That's what I think is, is a really great example. Another one would be, uh, you know, the other side of the spectrum would be my buddy uh, Glenn Ellsberg up in northeast Iowa who uh, identified, uh, you know, when he was a kid that his parents were not going to have enough land for him to be a full-time farmer growing, uh, you know, corn and beans and oats and, and making hay. So he decided to, to learn how to grow vegetables uh, for organic markets. His father was already an organic farmer for grains and livestock, you know. And um, he bought he bought 80 acres um, with an FSA loan and is marketing uh, vegetables through the Organic Valley Co-op. They also sell uh, vegetables in addition to fabulous milk. So that's a, that's just two quick examples off the top of my head of, of people that are, you know, using uh, you know, combination of experience and family connections to learn and try their business, but then also accessing capital through the Farm Service Agency to get that first piece of land. Well, and, and I feel like you've identified another kind of core, core truth about farming, which is that there's the there's the practical experience of production, meaning how to plant, when to plant, when to cultivate, how to harvest, how to store, how to process, how to prep, how to schlep. All that part of the, like, moving things around part of agriculture. And then there's the, like, you know, um, office work, strategy, ordering, maximizing outputs for inputs, balancing the books, making a priori- priorities about which actions are take precedence over others, which costs to accept now and which to postpone until later. And there's a right. whole set of intuitions... Th- that exist in the management side that are totally separate from the intuitions that exist, you know, only in service to what the crop wants. And yeah. one thing that I know, um, again, from, from the literature and from talking with folks, is that a lot of times farm kids are super confident doing all of the jobs of the farm and have been included in, man- in management conversations their whole lives and have been... Uh, part of the working farm team their whole lives, but yep. but learning the business part and the strategy part, um, and and thinking about the succession of that business to their own shoulders, often means that they are really needing to have business planning courses outside of the family as well. That's exactly right, and that's exactly what you saw. I mean, both Glenn and Nate came to our next generation retreat last uh, uh, December because it was focused on business planning. And they are just as eager as a beginner without a farm background uh, to learn about business planning and making business decisions, you know, and discernment, you know, deciding, is it trying to do this thing or that thing, and building your advisory team. I mean, managing a business is so hard, you know. It's just really complex. And, and a farm business, man, it's just really, I think that, uh, I think there's just so much need for, for sharing and learning. And, and, I, and I would be remiss if I didn't uh, stop myself and say, you know what, Luke, 40%, 43% of your beginning farmers that you work with are women, and I've just talked about men. So I'm going to correct myself right now and say uh, another beginning farmer I know, Kate Edwards, near Iowa City, fantastic friend of mine, uh, new beginning farmer uh, in our organization here 16 months ago or so. Uh, she's renting land from a local food supporter in uh, outside of a large city in eastern Iowa, and uh, she's been able to use her network um, and her engineering degree that she got from Iowa State University and and combining her, her network with that, that good friend and supporter of local foods, she's able to, to have a long-term lease agreement on this land and, uh, and grow fresh vegetables for markets in Iowa City as she builds her, her business skills. You know, So there's, 
there's a lot of great examples like that too, where, where, where women as well as men are, are involved in production and, and uh, all the management complexities that that uh, entails. Well, and again, you know, I've just come off a bunch of panels in the Boston area, and I'm, you know, really struck. Even in a place as built up as New England, there there is so much conservation land and conservation organizations who really do have a mandate to keep that land in active, active farming. And it just over and over again, you know, hits me on the head what a wonderful incubator it is when that land trust land that close into the city or in the, in the suburbs land, um, how the smaller parcels that are owned by Holiday Home or, you know, local food lovers or kind of lifestyle farmer demographic people, how those smaller parcels really make so much sense for beginning farmers and especially like for beginning, beginning farmers for those first, you know, four or five, six, four or five seasons where you're, you know, just knocking it, you know, knocking down your skills and building the business and building acumen and building your equity and your infrastructure and your equipment shed um, and, and putting you into a position where you can then compete for the large, those larger, those larger pieces, and 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 have the the market network to be able to grow for a bigger market, also. So it's building your Absolutely. skills, but it's also building your marketplace. You know, if you want to be an electrician, the United States as a whole, I believe I haven't been to every state in the country, but uh, it seems like there is a well-developed uh, pathway. If you want to be a certified electrician, there's a pathway. There's an apprenticeship program you can. You can go to a training program at a school, and you can get into an apprenticeship program, and you can get paid to learn and get, you know, get experience, and you get so many hours, and then you get a, you know, pass a test, and you've got credentials. There's nothing like that for agriculture, you know? And but for, for no matter what the enterprise, there should be. I mean, I think if, if we wanted to really invest in, in local farmers, I think the Scandinavian countries are, you know, decades ahead of us as far as that goes, as far as their, their real support of having local production uh, and local, uh, you know, local people in charge. Maybe, maybe not owning the land, but being farm managers and having a making a good living, uh, being stewards uh, of producing food for for the folks that live in that uh, that area. Well, you're right. So in in Scandinavia and in um, Austria and in Switzerland, you're not allowed to buy land, agricultural land, unless you have a certificate in in agriculture. And wow. And it and the one I guess I well I am. A Swiss citizen and could therefore potentially, you know, bail on America and go to Switzerland and farm, <laughs> which I investigated um, during a certain presidency. And but the, but the training course, the is, Carter, it's <laughs> good guess. No, the training course is three years long, and then okay. and then there's an exam, and you have to do um, practicum, so you have to work all the summers. So it wasn't compatible with where I was at, which was in college. But, um, you know, so there are other places who have a stronger regulatory framework around farmland ownership. And, you know, they have a higher expectation of management, you know, like, you know, really much more prescriptive in terms of cows per acre and how, you know, when you mow your pasture in order to make butterfly habitat, all these things. They're much more. What? Absolutely. My good, good, good friend, I'm sorry to interrupt, my good, good, good friend, Kevin Dietzel, who is uh, having his last week at PFI this week, um, he's starting a cheesery in north, in central Iowa. Um, he is a phenomenal person, and I want to give him a shout-out, but I also wanted to say that uh, 
but he, he was learning for three years in Germany on different German farms, um, integrated crop, livestock, vegetable, dairy, uh, pork, beef, you know, the whole gamut. And he said there, there were farmers, I'm not joking, who they'd be cutting hay, and then there would be a little corner that, that was too small for the equipment to get into, and so they would get off the tractor and with a hand sickle cut that last triangle of land and, and then, you know, they could use that for, to, you know, to make hay out of. Um, and that concept of getting out of the tractor is just absolutely not how we operate in Iowa. I mean, you see people all over the place, like, they just don't have time. Like, they'll see something in the field, like, oh, that corn looks kind of funny. I, I, I bet I have some sort of, like, rootworm problem or something. But they're like, well, I don't have time to get off the combine to go check it out. So I'll just combine it. And I'll spray something. So that's just a great example of the different, you know, realities that farmers are facing, you know, one with the support of regulatory framework for, you know, being on the land, being small farmers in a complex global competitive marketplace, and the other one that's like, good luck farmers, well, grow, or, grow or die. Well, I mean, so just another woman's perspective again, so I also worked on a lot of farms in Switzerland, and, and um you know, the, the scything on uh, the hay underneath the apple trees is incredibly romantic. And, you know, there you are, and it's dappled shade, and, and, you know, you're scything, and it's heavenly, and then we have these long-handled rakes, and it's so heavenly. And then you hear the joke about what that hay that's scythed under the trees is called, and it's a very pejorative joke that has to do with, this is the hay that will make the profit that I can spend on beer while my wife stays at home. <laughs> wow. And, um, Terrible. So anyway, so like that, there's all different things that we carry over, you know, the care of smaller amounts of land um, comes with certain benefits and, and there's, um, you know, patriarchal issues in every country also. Yeah, but, no, but, I agree. But I, but I, I, like, I like that we get to talk about it. I like that we get to think about it and I like that we get to add our own instinct and our own intention to the way that we design our farm enterprises and the way that we treat our natural resource base and, and our management of it. Um, speaking of resources, Luke, are you ready for a roundup? Lightning round? I'm ready. <laughs> Ding! <laughs> um, so, you're a beginning farmer. You're somewhere in America, not probably in Iowa, because if you were in Iowa, you'd already know Luke and you'd be set. <laughs> but you're interested in you're interested in in success. But you also might have some inclination to stand up and represent for the Beginning Farmer and Rancher Opportunity Act. What are some great places for you to go to learn more about the programs that exist, to identify successes, and to become a more engaged citizen in this coming farm bill season? Well, I guess um, the National Sustainable Ag Coalition is the go-to place, the go-to place for sustainable agriculture policy, whatever. I mean, they are just on top of it, doing a great job, keeping everybody in the loop. Um, so I would encourage every beginning farmer who cares about, uh, you know, their own plight, but also the plight of other beginning farmers, and even more experienced farmers care about beginning farmers, you know, everybody who cares about seeing the next generation get started and bring their new ideas and new energy in agriculture to be very supportive and know what your congressperson and senator 
is does in support of support or or uh, uh, you know the, the opposite of support. Um, <laughs> ignore. <laughs> oppose. Ignore. Yeah. Uh, of uh, the beginning farm ranch and development program, BFRDP is the lingo. Um, for example, Senator Grassley and Senator Harkin uh, are both senators in Iowa that uh, really should, both should support 100%, and, and Grassley has been uh, not 100% supportive, so we always need to make sure to build coalitions and partnerships and reach out to Senator Grassley and really bring him on board with uh, this beginning farmer train that is unstoppable around the nation. Um, and, uh, and if you're not in Iowa, then you know you gotta you gotta reach out and know just know who these people are and shoot them an email and let them know you're a beginning farmer and you want to build uh, strong economies in your state and create jobs. You know all these vegetable farms uh, for local food that means jobs. You know it takes a lot of labor and organic. You know times four. You know a bunch of labor needed there and those are people, those are putting people to work. You know it's putting college kids without without jobs uh, to work in the fields and you know build their bodies and build their minds and. Think creatively, and uh, I think that's the best thing America needs right now. That's what America needs right now. So you heard it here first. <laughs> A couple of announcements while we're on the air. Farm Hack Iowa is going on, and Luke is going to be there, and it's I'm going to be there, and Grant Schultz is going to be there, and Kristen Loria is going to be there, and we're all going to be there in Mechanicsville, Iowa. Are you twisting my arm right now? You're not going to be there? <laughs> uncle, uncle. Um, I don't know. I think so. It just depends. If it's on a Saturday, definitely not. Well, we'll make sure not to schedule on a Saturday, but I think it's scheduled <laughs> for the 20th and 21st of June, 2012. That's this coming to the 20th, and that's kind of good. The 20th and the 21st of 2012 in Mechanicsville, <laughs> Iowa. Details on farmhack.net. Farmhack.net, your source for farmer-driven innovation tools that are the outcome of workshopping between farmers and engineers. There's really great new news on Farmhack.net right now about the Arduino project that BR and Lewis and RJ are working on. It's a little robot that will email you or send you a text message when your greenhouse gets too hot, which is a problem we have, especially when it turns 80 degrees on a flip of a dime. Here, wow. in the, here in the Northeast in March, we had weather in the 70s, which is a very tender moment when you have tender little seedlings with just a little root hair. So, Do you guys have to pay property taxes on, on hoop houses? Well, that's a non-sequitur. I just heard about this where a farmer told me today that he's being taxed for a $20,000 building for a hoop house. Like a hoop house equals, as far as the county is concerned, a $20,000 improvement because it's in the soil. Sounds like you have some research to do and that you're going to get paid by your nonprofit to do it. Hopefully. God, I have the best job in the world, don't I? <laughs> I hope that you'll share the research that you do through, yeah, a, through yeah, a webinar one of these days. Oh, my gosh. It would be great. So this has been... I think we have the best job in the world, veteran. I think we, like, we have the voice boxes of, you know, like, we help people... Usually at PFI, we don't like to put ourselves in the spotlight. We like to put farmers in the spotlight. So it's really uh, a privilege to get to get to share some of my views today. And and I think we have uh, we have it easy, you know, because we have. Uh, I guess I can't speak for you, but uh, you know, I get paid every two weeks. And uh, doesn't matter if I get if I get sick, you know, I take a couple days paid time off, and that's fine. But, you know, I know farmers uh, don't have that luxury, and I think. Uh, 
I think there's, I just always try to remember that and try to be really supportive of farmers. Well, we're lucky to have you, Luke. I really admire what you do and the attitude you bring to it. And I can't wait to hang out with you in June. <laughs> this is... Uncle! <laughs> this has been another of our Young Farmer Policy Podcast series, a series whose purpose is to help young farmers and others who care understand the policy context in this coming farm bill, what's out there for beginning farmers, and how to ensure that more programs continue to exist or flourish or at least don't get destroyed. That's our goal. And there are many things to know about, including here in the Hudson Valley, the Hudson Valley Young Farmers Coalition, which has a meeting on April 25th at Sparrowbush Farm. If you wanted to know about things like that, such as farmers parties, parties for young farmers, that parties, those gatherings, you need to learn about them by being on the listserv. Hudson Valley Young Farmers Coalition, you can find them on the National Young Farmers Coalition website. National Young Farmers Coalition is, as I'm sure you know, a wonderful organization working to advocate for beginning and new farmers and ranchers in this country. Founded here in the Hudson Valley by myself, Lindsay Lesher Shute, and her husband, B.R. Shute of Hardy Roots Farm. There's just a lot going on. It's the Hudson Valley is just over bubbling, and 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 uh, that's the big noise outside. So this is it. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Luke. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye, bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.